Good morning, and please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. The title of the message this morning is, Blessed Are You. The focus of last week's message was a new phase beginning in, in the Lord's ministry on earth. We found him on a mountaintop praying all night to his heavenly Father, and I believe for a number of reasons, but one of which was the fact that immediately after that prayer meeting, he gathers his disciples, which were many together, and out of those disciples chose 12 of them to be apostles. These chosen representatives of the king would then be used to lay the foundation of the church, the new temple of God in the kingdom of his son. And as we noted last week, 12 is the number of designated authority. The 12 were sent out. That's what apostle means, to be sent out with this authority to represent and to serve the king. We have that authority because it has been invested in us by the apostles. <laughs> Jesus appointed these apostles on a mountaintop, as I said, after an all-night prayer vigil, and then he came down from the mountain to a level place to instruct him. And as uh, Mark's gospel says, that, uh, that they might be with him and that he might instruct them. So the first thing is that, that, he, that they be with him and then that he might teach them. And so what we have then from verses 20 through 46 of this chapter is his sermon on the plain because he came to a level place, the sermon on the plain. Many commentators argue that Luke's version is but an abbreviated edition of Matthew's lengthy sermon on the mount. They're recorded in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. I believe these are different sermons. Although many truths are repeated in both messages, Luke has material that's not found in Matthew. And it is not unusual for Jesus to repeat his lessons. For example, his uh, emphasis on prayer, and particularly his giving of the Lord's Prayer that we, that we know, know of as the Lord's Prayer, there in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 and following, is repeated in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. And there, the, the, the time and the place is clearly different. And the circumstances are clearly different. As they say, repetition is the mother of learning. It's not how much you know, it's how much, it's how well you know it. It's not how much you know, it's how well you know it. And I'm reminded of, of Peter, who informed his readers in, in his first epistle, their chapter 1, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in them. I think it right, Peter said, to stir, up, stir you up by way of reminder. Yes, we need to be constantly refreshed and reminded of the truths that we sometimes let grow cold and, and dusty on, our, on the back shelves of our lives. Now the Sermon on the Mount was directed to Jewish people. It's longer, much longer, and it was directed to Jewish people. We know this because there's a great deal of emphasis given to the law, the law of Moses. The Sermon on the Plain, however, omits these details because Luke, as we have emphasized before, was writing to Gentiles. And Gentiles were never under the law of Moses. In his letter to the Romans, Paul wrote there in chapter 2, verse 14, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves. The standard is, is there. It's eternal and it's universal. 
And Paul has said that while the Gentiles don't have the, the law written on tables of stones, it is written on their hearts. But not the full Mosaic law, we, it, what we would call the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God. But uh, with respect to the, to the other uh, commandments, Gentiles never had them. And uh, if you go to the 15th chapter there of the, of the book of Acts, uh, there it's, it's emphasized or it's talked about because they had Judaizers that were going out from Jerusalem to the Gentile churches to try to per persuade them that they too were under the law of Moses, and which required circumcision and all the other things. And the apostles there concluded that God had not intended that the Gentiles should be under the law. But uh, while they're not under the law, they're not definitely not exempt from it as the Lord shows us very clear here with, with respect to the moral law, that is. So all Jew and Gentile must answer to God, not to Moses. The law was given to reveal the need. And this is, I think, is the issue here in the Sermon on the Mount is that uh, Jesus wanted to correct the people of Israel with respect to the law. The law was not going to get them righteousness. It was not going to make them right with God. No matter how hard they tried to keep the law, they would not, it would not bring them to righteousness. Rather, the law was written to reveal the need for righteousness, for acceptable righteousness with God. That need would be provided by another means. Jesus himself. And again Paul wrote, We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may become account, be held accountable to God. Oh yeah, the law was, is there to 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 bring us up short, to show us that we are morally corrupt, that we are unable to live up to the standards of God. And Paul says, For by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. And so that brings us to the first point of our message this morning, and that is the need to be perfect. God's standard, as reflected in the law, requires all to be perfect as He is. Note there in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Anybody here perfect? Well, I've met some folks who thought they were. <laughs> they were certainly more perfect than anybody else. But here again, the term perfect here is often misunderstood. It doesn't mean that you, that, that you are infallible, that you can't do any wrong, that you can't make a mistake. Or anything like that. We're human beings. <laughs> That's part and parcel of our human existence. Is to, is to uh, make mistakes. Is to fail. To come short. Well what does the word perfect there mean? This, is, this to me is very revealing. It means to lack nothing for completeness. It doesn't mean that I have reached that point of completeness but that I have everything I need to get there. And that I will get there because I can't be with God unless I am complete. Spiritual completeness. See, this is what sin corrupts in our lives. 
is our ability to achieve completeness or perfection before God. That really is the key verse of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Lord knows that all flesh is imperfect, that merely forgiving of sin then is not enough. Yes, God forgives me and cleanses me through His blood. But that's not enough. As Ron pointed out in the message this morning, uses good intentions. His desire to preserve the Ark of the Covenant when it seemed like it was ready to fall off the cart. His natural instinct was to reach up his hand and steady the Ark. And God killed him. Not because he did something wrong, but because he was not perfect. He couldn't do it because he was not fully holy. And the ark was holy. Wasn't that God was mad? That's just the nature of the thing. That's just the nature of it. So the goal of the gospel is really full restoration to the perfection that was found in the unfallen state of Adam. When God made Adam, he was perfect. He was good. God saw all that he had created and declared it very good. So now, Christ's aim is to appoint officers in the church that will work toward that goal in the church. And we read that there in the book of Ephesians chapter 3, or excuse me, 4, verses 11 to 13. Listen to this. And he gave the apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to what? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain unto the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, knowing to know Christ, to know Him. God called His apostles First, to know him. See? And then, it says, to the, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. That word mature there is the same Greek word that's translated perfect in Matthew 5.48. Telios. Perfect manhood. Complete Complete. To the measure, and then it's further described here as a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, what God wants to do is make us like Him. Not just forgive us our sins, but to make us like Him. And again, in... Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, Paul said, To them, that is the church, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What is the mystery? Christ in you. The hope of glory. What is, Christ, what is God's intention? It's to produce Christ in us. So Paul said, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in, with all wisdom, godly wisdom, that we may present everyone mature. Again, that Greek word, teleos. Perfect. In Christ. What's God's goal for you? That you'll be perfect in Christ. Wow. And as noted above here, this uh, Greek term perfect is also translated often mature 
And the issue with the Jews was that they insisted that that goal was attained by their rule keeping and that it, that it was sufficient to achieve the standard of God. And by this they were completely missing God's intention. So Jesus summed up his little statement there in, in uh, or his little uh, presenting here of, of the, the center of his message here in the 20th verse of the 5th chapter when he said, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. You'll never enter the kingdom of God. Christ has to be formed in you first. That's what he told Nicodemus. Except a man be born again, or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is the, this is the goal. Preparing people, citizens, for the kingdom. That brings me to this issue of the Gentiles. What about the Gentiles? The, gen the, the issue with Gentiles was not law-keeping, it's wisdom. <laughs> Just read 1 Corinthians there. Wisdom, which is the use of knowledge to improve life and prudence in the management of those affairs. The Greek philosophers are much loved, even today, by many as a source of how I can improve myself. How can I can be a better person? And that, that, that really just tells you what's going on in the world today. We want to be better people. And it's not working. It is not working. Just look around you and see, see how that whole philosophy is collapsing. Paul declared... There in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, yet among the mature. And again, here's this word, teleos. And what he's talking about is those who have received Christ, have been born again, have Christ formed in them, so that they begin this process, they now contain because of the Holy Spirit indwelling. What's the purpose of the Spirit's indwelling us? It is to enable us by divine power to achieve this perfection. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Paul said, yet among the mature, that is those made perfect in Christ, not perfect in the sense of sinlessness, but not lacking anything preventing them for full, for full Christ-likeness, Paul, Paul says, we do impart wisdom. Yes, Gentiles operate on the wisdom of God. He said, although it is not the wisdom of this age or of the ruler of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. That same wisdom is found in the law too, see? Because it's of God. The law was given to the Gentile or to the Jews, but God works in the Gentiles with a particular wisdom, and it's a secret and hidden wisdom. So then we should it should be noted that Jesus emphasized that being perfect or mature, that is lacking nothing for spiritual completeness, was necessary for the kingdom of heaven. That's the goal. He's preparing people for the kingdom. The question then is, how can imperfect humans achieve this state necessary to qualify for entrance to the kingdom of God? The answer is found here in both the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. But 
as I as I was preparing this message, I was reminded again how many people, the average reader of the Sermon on the Mount gets confused. How many commentators don't really understand it? The aim of Christ in these sermons was not to correct wrong views of the law. It did do that. I won't deny that. But it's a mistake to see Jesus' message as merely seeking to correct the Jews on their misinterpretations of the law. As we noted earlier, the central theme of the message is found in verse 48. You therefore must be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. So the Jews thought that law-keeping could attain the goal. On the contrary, Jesus revealed that only in Him can this goal be achieved. So it's neither the law of Moses nor human wisdom. Gentile human wisdom. But it's that, that God has provided that His followers that the followers of Christ be presented perfect in Him. goes back to first, or Colossians 1.28, that, that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. So here, a clear illustration of this, I think, is found there in uh, Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. Being a Jewish disciple of, of the Pharisees, the man believed that his law-keeping was sufficient to earn him eternal life. And thus he asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He wanted to know what Christ would say. Whether that was a sincere question or whether he was testing the Lord, we're not, we don't, we're not told. But keeping with the assumption, Jesus said, if you would enter into life, keep the commandments. Now that's right. If we would enter into life, keep the commandments. But could this rich young ruler keep them? Could, can you keep them? No. The problem was that he couldn't keep them, and so his very question suggests that Actually, I think there's a twofold thing here. His, the, his very question suggests that he knew that he couldn't. That after he'd said, all these have I kept from my youth up, his, there was a nagging thing in his conscience that was telling him, you're, you're not there. You're not there. But I think the second thing is, when he asked the question, he was, it was a prideful way of saying, man, I'm good. Look what, I mean, I've kept all these commandments from my youth up. <laughs> what, do I, what do I lack yet, you know? <laughs> you pronounce me blessed right now. I'm good. And Jesus said, well, and he gave him commandments. He said, keep these. He said, I've kept them. But then Jesus said, if you would be perfect, if you would be what? Perfect. Whoa. What? That is lacking nothing for completeness. What, what do I lack yet? You lack what is needed for perfection. And if you would be perfect, Here's what to do. Go sell everything you have. Sell your riches. Give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. And then, come follow me. If you would be perfect, literally, give up your own life and follow me. That's discipleship, right? But what did Jesus mean by this? In Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, we have the answer 
Jesus gave us the answer as to why we should give up everything and follow him. This statement is the very heart of the sermon. Do, you, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I'm not removing them. I have not come to abolish them, but what? To fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. In other words, God gave the law to be accomplished, to be fulfilled. So that those who are under it could be perfect. But Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish them or to set them aside. I, I came to fulfill them. You can't. I can. I did. I will. So what was impossible for the followers of Moses could be possible now for the followers of Jesus. Because in him they are perfect. They have not they lack nothing for this spiritual completeness. Jesus is the fulfillment of the messianic law for righteousness. That's why Jesus said, I can come boldly under the throne of grace. Because it's no longer me that presents myself to the throne of grace. It's Christ in me that presents to the throne of grace. Do you see that? I'm wrapped in his righteousness. And God looks at me and says, I'm perfect. And if I were, if, if I were in that condition and that ark was starting to fall off the, the uh, cart there and I was using, reached up my hand to steady it, God would say, thank you. Because I'm perfect. In God's sight. Wow. All in him who truly follow him are made perfect. And when does this take when does this perfection take place? In resurrection. We have to die to self in order to be raised in Christ. So death, Christ's death and resurrection is the means and this is the fulfillment as well. My death and resurrection. That's the whole topic of the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul stated, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. I don't care how good you think you are. Your flesh and blood is insufficient. For you to enter the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again, born from above. Flesh lacks what is needed for completeness. Nor does, Paul say, the, the perishable inherit the imperishable. Because it's imperfect and unable to meet God's legal standard. However, here's the good news. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. Wow. 1 Corinthians 50, 15, 50, and 51. We'll all be changed at Christ's coming. And, and in that change, we will be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. So then Paul says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. 
But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Perfect and complete. According to the law standards. Because we shall see Him as He is. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. So in other words, we do not become perfect by keeping the law, but by being changed into Christ's image through the power of resurrection. This does not mean that obedience is not necessary. Or that it's, it is not our obedience, but it is our righteousness that is important. But He, not obedience, is our righteousness. And it is not our efforts to attain righteousness through obedience that makes us perfect. But obedience is perfect. So if obedience can't, uh, to the law can't make us perfect, as the rich young ruler found out, or as the scribes and the Pharisees uh, were blindly uh, stupid not to find out, if the law cannot make us perfect, where does our obedience come in? Because we should be obedient. In fact, notice what Jesus said there in, in the Sermon on the Mount with respect to the law. He who keeps them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He who discounts them is going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Notice that there, they'll be in the kingdom of heaven, but they but they'll be least in the kingdom of heaven. So obedience is important. You'll be either great in the kingdom of heaven or you'll be not so great in the kingdom of heaven depending on your efforts of obedience, but obedience is important. And thus Paul confessed not, and, and uh, here again uh, in the third chapter there of uh, of uh, Philippians, Paul said, not that I have already attained, see, uh, let me back up here a second, Paul understood this in, in this present life. He did not experience fully what Christ purchased for his own in his obedience. Now, it doesn't mean that Paul didn't have it. Paul was, Paul was an unbelievable, he, uh, he was unbelievable. He gave up everything that was profitable to him in his past Judaistic pursuits. And he gave them up, he says, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which, that, or that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith, through faithfulness of, the faithfulness of Christ. You're uh, English version there reads faith in Christ or the faith of Christ, but it's literally the faithfulness of Christ. Paul understood that in that in his past, what, what he knew about God, but now his deepest yearning was to know Christ intimately. The power of his resurrection which then also required him to share in his sufferings. The sufferings of Christ were met here. That would enable Paul to attain to the resurrection of the dead. In chapter 3, verses uh, 7 through 11. In the resurrection, the full realization of hope will be realized. The perfection Jesus attained for his own by his fulfillment of the law and the prophets. So, where then does his obedience come in? Well, Paul tells us here. Not, as, not that I have already attained or am already perfect. There's that word, teleos again. But I press on through spirit-enabled obedience to make it my own. This explains what Jesus meant by striving to enter the narrow gate. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own, Paul says. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, one thing I do, 
forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Perfection. That striving and straining characterizes obedience required of all to do the will of God. Paul wanted to be perfect as his heavenly Father was perfect. So like Paul, all believers already possess this perfection or maturity in Christ, but imperfectly. And it is through our obedience to the will of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to our continual pursuing it, that we improve until the day of the resurrection. When, then, when on that last day and we're raised, we will be fully changed into his likeness forever. Now that takes us to, then to the means of the perfection. My second point here, the means to perfection. And what do we mean here? We mean, we might also define the state of a perfection here as blessedness. We're blessed. The blessedness of the, of the children of the kingdom is the state of basking in the love of Christ, being free from self-deception, confident to stand in the day of judgment. And also confident that I now have the ability to pursue a life fully acceptable to Jesus Christ. This state of blessedness is what we discover in the Sermon on the Plain. Chapters, chapter 6, verses 20 to 46, the Beatitudes. By the way, I'm not going to preach the whole thing here. So just hang on here. The Beatitudes, which are found in verses 20 to 22, are in their repeated expression like that of the bells of heaven sounding out into an unblessed world and inviting all to enter the kingdom. Blessed, blessed, blessed. But over against these sweet tones, however, are the harsh woes. There are four blesseds, and there are four woes. The four woes are of verses 26 to 20, uh, 24 to 26. These woes are neither warnings nor wishes of either present or future conditions. No, no. They are pronouncements of judgment against, against those not blessed. This is Yuza's problem. Yuza did not have this perfection. And he touched the ark and the woe, and that was a woe. They are present judgments because the Beatitudes are present realities in the saints. And again, as the saints' hope lies in the final consummation of resurrection and reward, the ungodly will stand in condemnation before the judge. Indeed, all will appear before him at his coming. And what Luke publishes here describes the present messianic kingdom with all its spiritual blessedness. We're assembled together here today as the people of God and we are in blessing in being here and assembled. Yes. Indeed, there is a rich possession now, but it also contains the promise of still greater riches in the kingdom, in the eternal kingdom. Thus, blessedness results in joy and happiness. Continually fed and encouraged by the reality that what the blessed one now possesses is something guaranteed never to fail. Wow. Neither in this life or the one to come. And even though one may experience temporary hardship and sorrow now. It's only temporary. It will soon pass away. 
Jesus has promised the things that I have spoken to you that my uh, the things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full complete John 15:11 Matthew's beatitudes expressed are expressed in the third person blessed is he etc broad and general but Luke's beatitudes are in the second person and he's addressing particularly the, the apostles. Blessed are you, and so forth. Directed to these disciples present and listening. Verse 20 shows that the disciples were the subject of his instruction. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said. Then there are these four declarations of blessedness. But all four are independent. They're not independent. The first describes the condition in which the blessed blessedness is possible. Blessed are you poor. You who are poor. This term poor here translates that's translated poor derives from a verb signifying the condition of a beggar, cringing and couching in self-conscious anguish of destitution. The poverty here, however, is spiritual, not, not in nature, and describes the condition of deep submission before God in the realization of utter spiritual helplessness. Oh, woe to any believer who thinks that there's some way he can maybe improve if he just if I just do better. You know, I, I, maybe God would bless me if I could just do better. And really, is it worth it to do better? I got my ticket to heaven. Uh -uh. But do you, do you see yourself? Do you recognize yourself in this condition? It's the attitude of, and condition of one who is truly repentant. The realization of spiritual poverty is the single requirement for entering the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. This condition and its reward are possible only when one is brought by the Spirit to renounce all and to follow Jesus, and then look to and receive from Him alone all that is needed for fullness of life. It answers to the prophet Isaiah's pronouncement. This is the one whom I will, to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Isaiah 66 verse 2. The Pharisees lurking in the crowd surrounding the Lord and his disciples would reject this concept as do all unbelievers. They regarded the rich as blessed of God. Thus Jesus pronounced a woe against them. Woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. Verse 24. As in the incident of the rich ruler referred to earlier here. Even the uninformed disciples were under that notion. As, they, as seen by their reaction to Jesus' declaration that only with difficulty will the rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. And here we see the overlap of the material and the spiritual. Material wealth is clearly referred to here, but spiritual blindness due to a lack of spiritual perception controlled the understanding of the Jews. Empty hearts still uh, Jesus can fill those who are filled with pride, he will not fill because they're already full with their own fullness. The second beatitude builds upon the first and describes the condition of the beggar as starving in constant hunger. Jesus promises to satisfy this present Hunger, now, he said, this spiritual hunger, you shall be satisfied. Matthew reveals the hunger 
is for righteousness. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst after righteousness. The hunger is met with righteousness, but not our own, his righteousness. And as the psalmist stated, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness when I awake, that is, in the resurrection. I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Psalm 17, 15. Interestingly, in the spiritual realm, this hunger, though immediately satisfied, is in the satisfaction only increased. Think of that. Here's a paradox. We're satisfied, but in the satisfaction, I'm great. I have more hunger, and it's a greater hunger. And the more I'm satisfied, the greater my hunger. Wow. It's a perpetual hunger, but the satisfaction is also abundant and expansive. The more I hunger, the greater is the filling. One who is fully fulfilled daily with Christ's righteousness is truly blessed. But woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Verse 25, God pronounced this word of judgment against the rebellious nation in Isaiah 65, verse 13 and 14. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. My servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for the breaking of spirit. The third beatitude builds upon the brokenness of the, of the spiritual beggar. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Verse 21b. The verb here describes an audible weeping, a sobbing. This sobbing of the godly is due to the recognition of the power of sin and the utter helplessness of the one who to overcome it both in its destructive force, both in it, the sin itself, and its destructive force in his life. Oh, how many people I've talked to that struggle and struggle with the sins that they have brought into their life and their utter inability to overcome them. Because they're pursuing the wrong course to do so. Jesus said, I, I will leave you not, I, I will not leave you as orphans. Uh, the, the, the word here is one bereft of the comfort of a father. And so the King James Version renders it comfortless. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Not, this is not the second coming, by the way, either. I will, I will come to you yet a little while. And the world will see me no more because he's going to the cross and then going to get buried in the grave. But you will see me after three days. I'm going to rise again. And I'm going to come and be in your midst. And because I live, you also will live. John 14, 18. And again, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. But the world will rejoice. When they see Christ on the cross, it, they were broken. And the world was saying, yeah, we got him. Ah, Jesus said, but the world, but uh, you, will re, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. He's living. He lives now. John 16, 20. So this promise of joy is not for eternal, but for the eternal realm, but for here and now. Jesus gave the promise in anticipation of his resurrection and seating with the, at the Father's right hand. When that anticipation of his resurrection and seating was fulfilled, he poured out his spirit on, on his own. You have sorrow now, but... But I will see you again after the resurrection and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. 
in that day, you will ask me nothing. You're not going to, oh, what's this all about? What's this all about? No, no, you're going to understand. That's John, John 16, 22 and 23. This paradox then is deliberate in showing our present existence as filled with both sobbing and laughter. Isn't that what we experience? We can laugh while we've got a broken heart. But it creates in his saints the perpetual yearning for his coming and the reward of eternal consolation. I was thinking about that the other day. Disappointment only increases my longing for his return. On the other hand, the ungodly may laugh now, but judgment's coming. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. 25b. And Jesus declared, I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the supposed sons of the kingdom, I, I add that because I think that's the intention, will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 8, eight 10 through 12. With this, we close the message and promise to take up the last beatitude in our next message, Lord willing. Let's pray. Father, Oh, what a powerful truth. Jesus came to fulfill the law so that we who are unable to keep even the least of the commandments can stand before you in perfect righteousness before God. Oh, we thank you and praise you for our Savior and for his salvation. And Lord, we thank you for his spirit that works in us, not only that we are wrapped in his righteousness, but that we can become righteous in our obedience to your will. Father, we praise you and thank you for what you've done. Take this message, burn it deep into our hearts. Give us that hope and anticipation of the resurrection and your return. And we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.